it's as if the psyche is spiritually organized in a certain sense. The, the archetypes are like organizing principles in the psyche. They, they are analogous to the laws of physics, which describe, which, which, are, which are how we describe the physical world, the lawfulness of matter. Well, the psyche has its own lawfulness, its own internal patterns and laws, and, uh, uh, which determine how it works. It's the morning ritual, and a good one it is. Uh, it's looking dark outside. I uh, I really enjoy this time. So I want to go through a couple of things before we get started. I'm certainly going to read the bio of today's participant, who is Dr. Lionel Corbett. He's been a big influence for me. One of his books in particular, The Religious Function of the Psyche, has um, has been helpful. <laughs> I keep saying that. I keep saying instrumental or helpful or opening, but it's true. I, 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 this is such a fantastic experience oh, to speak to these folks who have been so influential. So let me geek out for a second on my gratitude and excitement. Um, on that note, I, I do want to thank a couple of people who've posted feedback. Uh, Kike... And then Jack from Austin, Jeff from Boulder, and of course James Durkitz, whom you'll hear from in the next couple of weeks. Thanks for your posts and comments and emails. I'm 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 really grateful for the feedback, and uh, and keep it coming. Uh, a, a note on our conversation today: Dr. Corbett is is out in California, and it just so happens on the day we spoke, um, the smoke was coming in the building where he offices because of the fires. Thankfully, those those have gone, or those have since gone, but you'll hear us talk about it at the end. So um, there's a part of me that's just aware of what was going on in that moment, and uh, with my heart going out to all the people that were affected by the fires. It's hard to go into something else after that note. On the website, thesacredspeaks.com, I'll be posting um, videos and music from all the bands you're going to hear, because... As of last week, I started putting into rotation new songs. You know, the music you'll hear is the theme song is Clouds from Modern Nations, and last week I put Erase the Sun from Modern Nations. And this week I'm going to start with some new groups, and at the very end of the episode you'll hear new bands, and for the most part, these are all friends of mine that um, I, I used to play music with. Today is a group I know well, a lot of my friends, uh, Tim Locke is the singer and guitar player. Nolan Teese is the bass player. Toby Pipes on synth and keys. Jordan Roberts on guitar. And Jeff Gilroy on the drums. And uh, I, I can I can say I'm a fan of this band. So I'm excited to play Calhoun. 
and it's some good stuff and they've got a lot of it they've been playing for years so um i'll, I'll again i'll I'll post a couple of their music videos and one of their songs on the website, but um, go and explore them. Calhoun may be so cool they don't even have a website, but if they do, Google them Calhoun Music and you'll find a bunch of information. Um, you can reach Dr. Lionel Corbett. He'll, he'll say it at the very end at psycheandthesacred.org. And the band that's producing the, um, the theme song uh, is Modern Nations. You can reach them at Modern Nations Music. Dot com. Uh, and I think, oh yeah, the, the other thing is that a couple of these, these, um, these conversations I'm doing over Skype, hence the kind of difficulties in some of the, um, the, the, the vocal quality. I think it's kind of cool. It sounds like it's in a, it's a little like a lo-fi garage band kind of thing. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it, it's the best I can, I can get uh, at a distance and I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty grateful for technology. But I will try to, as much as I can, as often as possible, I, I try to be in person with these folks, but it just can't always work that way. So the ones that aren't, I'm using Skype uh, or FaceTime or something like that. Okay, let me read Dr. Corbett's bio, and then we'll get started. Lionel Corbett received his medical degree from the University of Manchester, England in 1966, served as a military physician and became a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists in 1974. In the U.S., he did fundamental research into the biochemistry of the brain, began one of the first programs in the psychology of aging, was a hospital medical director of inpatient psychiatry, trained as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago from 78 to 86, and helped found a training program for Jungian analysts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, while, car while carrying on a private practice and teaching psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. Dr. Corbett has studied various spiritual disciplines, including Christian and Jewish mysticism, Buddhism, Advaita Vedanta, and yoga, and has had a personal meditation practice for 20 years. He now teaches depth psychology at Pacifica Graduate Institute near Santa Barbara, California, where he founded the Psyche and the Sacred Program, a highly successful series in its fifth year, that integrates spirituality with depth psychology. This program has developed a powerful approach to spirituality that is based on personal experience of the sacred, avoiding all forms of doctrine and dogma. He's the author of five books, several training films, and over 40 professional articles. Publications include the essay Seduction, Psychotherapy, and the alchemical Glutinum Mundi. In the book Fire in the Stone, the Alchemy of Desire, Psyche and the Sacred, Spirituality Beyond Religion, The Sacred Cauldron, Psychotherapy as a Spiritual Practice, The Religious Function of the Psyche, and Soul in Anguish, Psychotherapeutic Approaches to Suffering. Courses taught in the Jungian and Archetypal Studies Specialization are Depth Psychology and the Sacred, Approaching the Numinous, and Introduction to Depth Psychology. I, I, really, Lionel was fantastic here. He he fielded a random email from me. I had a friend connect us, one of the earlier participants, Sean Fitzpatrick, and he indulged my curiosity. So I'm, I'm really grateful for his spirit of adventure and to arrange the time to talk to me on this project. Thanks a lot, um, Lionel. I'm, I'm really grateful. Okay, I think that's it for the day. We'll leave it there and get started. We've not met in person, and I think it speaks volumes that you're able to indulge uh, 
people on their pursuit of uh, of growth and um, expanding their knowledge. And um, but but getting into such a personal conversation like this, I'm I'm really grateful. Um, I, I want to start as as we both agreed when we were kind of talking through how to spend our time today. I, I do think it's important both for myself and for anybody listening to learn a little bit about how you've come to contemplate these questions that you that you've obviously been thinking about so much i wonder if you'd spend a little time on that well i started my career doing um, medicine and then psychiatry and um i realized after a few years of uh, practicing psychiatry and doing biological research um, into some uh, neurobiology that um this was the wrong approach to emotional difficulties um, the, bio the purely biological approach, and certainly it was no use uh, when considering people's spiritual difficulties. Um, so looking for a kind of psychology that includes the spiritual dimension, I came across Jung, fortunately. I was doing research in Chicago at the time, and uh, went into analysis with June Singer, who had just started the uh, Chicago Jung Institute, and that was my beginning, that was the beginning of this journey for me. So, uh, how? Let's go a little bit more into that. How did you find Young, or how did Young find you? Well, it was a synchronistic event. I, I was doing a, a, a biological research and, and, and uh, practicing uh, general psychiatry, and becoming increasingly unhappy. And one day, um, I decided I needed to go into therapy, and I happened to meet the. Um, hospital statistician, the research statistician, highly mathematical type, <laughs> who suggests who it turned out was in, was in analysis with one of the analysts at the uh, newly formed Jung Institute in Chicago. And uh, he introduced me to June Singer's book, Boundaries of the Soul. And that was the beginning of the journey for me. So it was, it was just a synchronistic uh, event. And I've been uh, guided by synchronistic events ever since. I'm sure. <laughs> well, what would you, um, would you say a little bit more about your frustrations in neurobiology? Well, it has to do with the, with the long-standing um, brain-mind problem. Um, I realized that um, um, emotional difficulties, um, psychological difficulties, have to be addressed at their own level. The psyche is much more complicated. Uh, or I shouldn't say this. Uh, I should say that um, um, I don't think you can get, you can entirely understand the psyche by understanding the brain. I think that's a fundamental mistake. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the brain's important, but there are aspects of the psyche that are simply not reducible to the brain. And certainly there are aspects of our spirituality that are not reducible to the brain. In my opinion, this is obviously controversial. But that was the point that I came to. And I realized you have to look at the psyche at its own level. So I gave up the brain research and started studying Jung. Uh, would you speak a little bit, because uh, I know you're obviously with that said, you think about these things a lot. Would you talk a little bit about the controversy between the Kind of the reducible mind and and beyond. Um, the kind of situation that I that I saw when I was in practice is that people would, for example, would get depressed because they were in a painful marriage or an intolerable job situation or something like that, 
And I realized that if they were given antidepressants, they would be made and the antidepressants would help them. They would feel more comfortable. But all that was happening is it would allow them to stay in a difficult situation without feeling unbearable emotional pain. It did nothing to deal with the situation they were in. So I think that treating problems like depression at the level of the brain is ignoring the, is the wrong level at which to address these kinds of problems. And I don't think that spirituality can be reduced to the brain either. And I became very interested in how spirituality manifests itself in the course of psychotherapy. I, I, I went to For school. Some, yeah, please, go on. I was going to say, uh, the most important aspect of that is when a person is suffering and they ask questions of meaning. What does this mean? Why is this happening to me? Has God abandoned me? You know, these are the kinds of questions that uh, are raised by religiously oriented people when they're in therapy. And of course, there's, there's no point in appealing to the brain to address those kinds of uh, questions. But they can be addressed if we look at dreams and synchronistic events and visionary experiences, um, that's the level that, they, that I became interested in because that's the level that addresses these issues. So you said pain, and I immediately thought about um, the work that you've done exploring psychopathology. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do you understand psychopathology? Well, I think Jung is essentially correct that... Um, symptoms such as anxiety and depression are signals from the transpersonal self, you know, the self that we write with the uh, uppercase letter S, or from the, the objective psyche or the deep levels of the unconscious. The symptom is a signal that something needs attention, Some, uh, we, that uh, there's some aspect of our life that needs attention. Of course, it's possible to help people symptomatically with medication so that the distress is eased and the suffering is eased. And that's very, very important. But it's simply uh, not dealing with the, with the core issue. Well, I think there is... It, it may be that the core issue can't be dealt with. It may be an impossible situation, in which case people can be helped symptomatically. But I, I think where possible, uh, uh, we should look at the, the, the deeper problem. So this goes to the core, um, I, I think in, in my practice where I see a lot of the core issue is people try to determine, is this me trying to flee from something? As in, you know, am I experiencing the struggles and the anxiety that I'm experiencing in this job that I've got? Uh, or is the anxiety that's coming up for me an invitation to go dance or to go, uh, you know, write poetry. Yes. And, and exactly. I notice an so enormous my, amount of pain there. Yeah, there, there, there are often aspects of the personality that haven't been developed that need attention, or there's simply sometimes a change in the in a person's life is necessary. There is the caveat that this is not always possible. This is a council of perfection. But where it's possible, uh, that's that's an ideal to, to aim for. So then where does, I, I know you say this often, and, and I, uh, I've read two of your books that have been very important in helping me understand what we're talking about here, begin to understand, but you talk a lot about the religiously minded 
um, psychotherapist or the spiritually minded psychotherapist. And so your your yeah. view essentially is a psychological, spiritual world view. Is that correct? Yeah. So For how, example, when you work... Yeah. Sorry. Go on, please. When you're working with a very painful complex um, from childhood, some serious emotional difficulty, according to Jung, there's an archetypal core to the complex. The archetypes are transpersonal principles, spiritual principles. Jung calls them organs of God or tools of God in a letter. And then what happens is that the human shell of the complex, the memories of an individual mother or father, uh, ideas, memories, images of that parent will form around the, the archetypal core the, um, of forming the complex. So it has a spiritual core and a human shell. So when you do psychotherapy, you work with the, commonly with all the schools of psychotherapy work with the human shell of the complex. Only Jung realizes that the complex has a spiritual core. And sometimes that manifests itself in, in the numinous experiences, which are experiences of the archetypal level of the psyche. Unless you're aware of that level, you, 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 um, you're not treating the deepest level of the issue. For those listening who, who don't quite know uh, how to understand or conceptualize some of these words we're using, archetype and complex, would you speak to those two for a second? It's as if the psyche is spiritually organized in a certain sense. The, the archetypes are like organizing principles in the psyche. They, they are analogous to the laws of physics, which describe, which, which, are, which are how we describe the physical world, the lawfulness of matter. Well, the psyche has its own lawfulness, its own internal patterns and laws, and, uh, uh, which determine how it works. So, for example, um, all the religious traditions have uh, some kind of feminine aspects of the divine or a queen of heaven or a goddess or a great mother. That would be the archetypal level of, of the, uh, as it were, behind the personal mother. So that when you experience, and similarly with the father, there are all kinds of father gods in the traditions, Odin, Zeus, Jupiter, and, and mm -hmm. so on. So, so that when you um, are experiencing your personal mother or father, as it were, behind that is the archetypal mother or father. Uh, and these are very powerful uh, de determinants of, what, of the structures of the individual psyche. They can either be positive or negative. And there are, other there are other archetypal organizing principles in the psyche. There are determinants of vocation, for example. There are archetypal um, dominants that make one a healer or a teacher or a priest or whatever, um, all of which have a, a radically formative effect on the structure of the personality. And, and the sort of conductor of this orchestra is what Jung calls the self, which is not the personal self, written with a lowercase s, like yourself, myself, but the transpersonal self, which he regards as an image or an element of the divine in the psyche that uh, holds the whole thing together and orchestrates the development of the personality. This is a little bit where I notice Jung kind of, at least my reading, oftentimes when it comes up against discussing any other or more, uh, Jung 
I think tends to say, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm studying the bridges, I'm studying the images. I, I don't make any kind of, I don't presume to know anything beyond. I'm not a theologian. Mm-hmm. How have your thoughts on this subject changed and shift through the days? Well, well, he 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 said I'm not a theologian because he he was accused of doing theology because he talked about the God image in the psyche, um, and. Um, Basically, his point is that he's as long as he's talking about people's experience, he's he's remaining a psychologist. He says, "I'm not talking about the transcendent God of the traditions. I'm talking about the intrapsychic representation of the God, the God image in the psyche." And I can, he says, "I can empirically demonstrate that there are God images in the psyche." Um, and and he thinks that these this innate God image which is a priori, it's not the result of experience, mm-hmm. is projected to the local God. So if, if you're raised in a Christian culture, you will project it onto Jesus Christ. If you were raised in a, in, in a culture with a different God image, you would project the self onto just whatever is the local God. So this is inherently a, a perennialist viewpoint, correct? I mean, he's saying that there is... A, a monotheistic God that beyond the images that we all have. No, no, no. It's very important not to import classical theism into Jung's psychology. He's not saying this. This is a monotheistic idea. The, the um, we don't know anything. Of, um, the self manifests itself as any number of archetype images. We don't know what the self is. Just as for Jung, we don't know what the unconscious is. He says the unconscious is just a posit. It's just our word for the unknown. So we shouldn't assume that there's some analogy between the monotheistic God of the, of the Western traditions and um, Jung's self. All we know is that the self manifests itself in these various ways. It has archetypal constituents or components. Um, but we don't know its nature. And we don't know the nature of the psyche anyway, for, as well. We, for Jung, uh, you can't reduce the psyche to the brain. That would, that's a fundamental mistake. So you couldn't reduce consciousness to the brain. The psyche is a domain in its own right, and it's just as real as the material world. Do you think that? Uh, do you think that even to understand, to begin to understand what that sentence you just said is? What, what can you say about practice, uh, you know, whether it's an academic or spiritual, religious or meditation practice? Is that, um, is that absolutely necessary? Um, that's what you mean by necessary. <laughs> are, are you asking, is, is a spiritual practice necessary? No, I, 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 I guess I always have these openings as a result of, you know, meditating or yoga or or engaging these ideas and and it's like reading a book you know where you read it once and then you read it the second time and new things pop out and i think if yeah. we blow that experience up over the course of a lifetime life becomes almost a multi-dimensional reality and that we we get to know things in new ways because we've studied or because we've attended to and yeah. I, i'm wondering about kind of the the necessity of in order to have a spiritual or religious perspective, does one need to be a student of their own mind? 
um, I think you can I think you can have a personal spirituality that has that is not necessarily connected to any of our religious traditions. I think that paying attention to the psyche itself is a is a spiritual practice. Um, now um, you can make a you can do this consciously, for example, by recording your dreams and trying to understand uh, what the dreams are saying to you. The idea being that the self is the maker of dreams. You can do that as a as a lifetime spiritual practice, or you can have uh, no particular interest in dreams, and you you can have a spirituality that you uh, that you're not even particularly aware of. For example, you might find nature very numinous. You might you might experience the sacred or the holy in nature, or you might experience it through the body, um, or through relationships. Um, but you might not call these modes spiritual because they may not they may not be defined as spiritual by the traditions. That the tr- I think that human beings have an innate uh, spiritual sense. I think there's good evidence for that going back to archaic religions based on, you know, stone circles, cave paintings, burial practices, and shamanic practices, and so on. And I think um, we we are sort of somehow wired to connect with the sacred. And the traditions kind of hijack that uh, innate ability in us and and want us to... um, Express this or connect to the sacred only through the sacraments and and and, uh, and rituals of their own uh, tradition. But in fact, you can find your own way of doing it. You don't have to be connected to any of the traditions. That's one of the values of Jung psychology. Do you think that uh, traditions as we know it, uh, religious traditions as we know it, are? Uh, as effective now in doing what they once set out to do? Oh no, no, no. I think I think since the Enlightenment, the Christian era is is fading. Uh-huh. I think um, that uh, Jung actually also thought that we are at a stage uh, which is analogous to the time when Christianity was beginning and paganism was starting to, was fading in the first few hundred years of the. Of the uh, of this um, uh, of this era, and now Christianity is fading, and something new is emerging in the culture, and the rise of fundamentalism is the attempt to cling to what we're losing. Yeah, it's scary it's, for a lot of people. It is, yes, yes. Um, some people think that um, paying attention to the psyche in the way that Jung suggests is is a is a a new form of spiritual practice that's arising alongside our existing traditions. Well, you actually got to one of the things that I often hear is a, you know, it's meant to be a criticism is that Jungian psychology is another religion that has just been created to put a confining container around these powers that be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you say to that critique? I'm sure you've heard it before. Could you say it again? I'm not sure I understand. Well, well, the idea that I, I was at a retreat once with a Jungian analyst and, and a, a number of colleagues, and we were studying the Red Book, and a, another analyst had walked by and said, ah, it's just another religion. It's seemingly because the, the structure that Jung was putting to these pretty um, anomalous and 
undefinable experiences seem to be the same kind of structure that has been put around you know religious phenomena for centuries Jungian psychology is not a religion. Uh, um, we don't have a hierarchy. We don't have a creation myth. We don't have a sacred text. Um, you know, we don't have uh, that kind of setup. Um, it, it is a spiritual approach to the psyche um, because it takes into account the fact that the psyche has a transpersonal or spiritual dimension, which Jung referred to as the collective unconscious or the autonomous psyche. If you pay attention to the manifestations of that level, um, and that is the level, Jung would say, that is the level through which the divine speaks to us, through the transpersonal level of the unconscious. So it, it's a spiritual practice in that sense. It's not a religion in, in, in the sense of an established uh, tradition. But it, but it does, and in my my experience, certainly help uh, help in in the way we can relate with these powers that can shake us to our core. Yes, and yes. although I know that you've you've, I would imagine you've experienced this too. There certainly is Jungian fundamentalism and. Uh, rigidities that come up, and and I think you address this at, at the end of your book, Psyche and the Sacred. Um, it is even meditation practice can be in service to uh, in, in in ego inflation. Yes, it depends. Um, if you it depends why you're meditating. If you're meditating for narcissistic enhancement, it's not uh, not spiritually helpful. Well, and I wonder if we could then jump into what I found to be such an amazing in, um, interpretation and uh, exploration of Job that you did in the same book. Would you speak <clears throat> about that? Because I think that's that certainly shows up in, I don't know, it's one of those things that now I see it in my practice and in myself all the time after revisiting that. Yeah. Well, the story of Job begins with a conversation between uh, Satan and God. From a, from a psychological point of view, one could see the Satan figure as a complex in Job's mind. The, you know, the old uh, etymology of the word Satan means the accuser or the slanderer. Something in Job's mind which accuses him of not being as good and pious as he seems to be on the surface. And then when all the tragedies befall him, um, I think that... Uh, well, there are various aspects to this story. One is that he has to radically transform his image of God because the traditional image said that God punishes the wicked and rewards the just and good. And that clearly is repudiated in the book because Job keeps insisting he hasn't done anything to deserve what's happened to him. Um, but what, what I think is very important in the book is that Job is a somewhat narcissistic character. He's spiritually asleep, he's smug, he's entitled, he's a very affluent man at the beginning, and he thinks that his wealth is a kind of entitlement. And then when he loses all his wealth, um, he develops real empathy for the poor because he's become poor himself. So his narcissistic structures of grandiosity and entitlement um, are radically tempered by his suffering. Um, narcissistic people typically lack empathy for others, um, which I think he did when he would hand down charity from on high. But now um, 
he's become poor himself, he realizes what it's like to be poor, and so those narcissistic structures are tempered. At the same time, which is one of the functions of suffering, at the same time, um, he says, I had heard you, I had heard about you, but now I can really see you, meaning that he, when he has a vision of God speaking to him out of the whirlwind, um, this is what we call a numinous experience in Jungian psychology. It's an, it's an experience of the self. Um, and that gives him a powerful personal image of the divine, rather than something that he's just heard about by hearsay. Um, so two things happen. One is that uh, Jung, uh, that um, Job has to change his personal image of God, has to develop something individual. And as Jung points out in his answer to Job, the, the canonical God image has to change. I could talk about that more if you want, but I don't Please know do. if you want me to. In answer to Job, um, which was a late book of Jung from the early 50s, he pointed out that, as it were, Job maintained his moral integrity to a higher level than did the God, uh, than did God in the Job story. So that Job essentially behaves in a way that's morally superior to God. This means that the God image is starting to become degraded because human beings have advanced morally beyond the level of the, of the God image of the time. So the God image, so Jung thinks that the canonical God image has to change to catch up with where human beings are in, the, in their moral development. So the answer to Job is the incarnation in Christ, where you have a radical change in the God image from a kind of storm God, a God of war, into a, in, into a God of love. That's what Jung thinks is, is, the, is the important aspect of the book. Also, Jung believes that God was, uh, the Yahweh figure in the story, was unconscious of his own dark side. It was as if he didn't realize how he was making Job suffer. And because Job maintained his integrity and insisted on his innocence, Job acted, acted as a reflecting consciousness for God, made him aware of his own dark side, of his own unconsciousness. So um, um, this, this led to the controversial idea that God was somehow unconscious of what he was doing. And uh, Jung says that God becomes conscious in the, in the act of human reflection. His idea was that somehow um, the divine needs a reflecting consciousness to, be, to become conscious of the opposites within its own nature. So um, um, I think as well the, the um, other important aspect of the story is, is, that, is the tempering of Job's narcissism and the change in Job's personal God image, which is uh, one of the functions of suffering. I hope that's too uh, complex a story. <laughs> no, I love it. Uh, what do you make about the um, the interpretation that the idea that the divine needs a reflection is narcissistic? Um, well, Jung thinks that the he asked somewhere why, if you were God, you would bother to create billions of inferior consciousnesses. <laughs> um, and he says that he thinks that the divine needs human consciousness to act as a kind of reflection, because the divine 
within the divine itself, all the opposites are united and they only become divided and differentiated in human consciousness. So God needs human consciousness to be aware of the antinomies, the opposites with, within the divine itself. Um, I personally think that, that this is a problematic notion because uh, I think that the, uh, you know, in the, in the non-dual spiritual traditions, um, such as Advaita Vedanta, uh, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, many of the non-dual traditions think of the divine as pure consciousness, as consciousness itself. So from that point of view, the um, the divine consciousness cannot be unconscious of itself. I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, uh, it's a mistake to. Would you say more about that? Yeah. Uh, um, if if uh, see see Jung Jung thinks that in order to have consciousness, you have to have an ego. One, one of his objections to practices like meditation, where the ego is either dissolved or temporarily suspended or seen to be not an entity and so on, um, he thinks that those kind of practices lead to essentially lead to unconsciousness because, because you have to have an ego to be conscious. The non-dual traditions would say that, that the divine can, can be equated with pure awareness or pure consciousness. Awareness with a capital A or consciousness with a capital C, in which case uh, there's no from its from the point of view of consciousness that there is no such thing as the unconscious. There's only the unconscious from the point of view of the ego. But consciousness in the non-dual traditions is is the totality, so it includes what we call ego. The ego is not a separate entity. It's illusory to think of it as a separate entity. Um, it's only empirically uh, separate. And in actual fact, from an absolute perspective, it's part of the totality. So the totality cannot be unconscious of itself. So Jung, when, when, he, when he insists on the importance of an ego and that the divine needs consciousness to differentiate itself, he's, being, he's actually being dualistic. When he says that the self, the transpersonal self, is the totality of consciousness and the unconscious, he's being non-dual. So he, he's, he's got a mixture of the ego. The notion of the ego self-axis is obviously dualistic. Mm -hmm. But to say that the self is the totality is, a, is actually a non-dual position, as is his notion of what he calls the unos mundos, um, the notion that reality is an undivided unity that's also a non-dual position so you can find both dualistic and non-dual strands in jungian thinking what occurs to me is i heard you say once that everyone is allowed one miracle oh well you yes um you, when you do research you have to begin with some premise uh, that your research is based on. That's that's the miracle that you're allowed to be. If you had to prove that, you couldn't do the research. <laughs> so that's why you're allowed one miracle. But only one. It seems to me like that would be at least the <clears throat> the paradox. You know, that, that kind of slippery young, the one that can't really be grasped and, and, and evades any kind of definition. 
do you think that do you do you buy that do you buy that that's the kind of core the core paradox of Jungian thinking is this mix between dual and non-dual thinking no i think that i think the difficulty is that we don't know what the unconscious is and we don't know what the self is and um we don't know really what the archetypes are we only know how all this manifests itself we don't know their essential nature and uh, unless you've experienced the archetypal realm or the self in the form of a numinous experience you don't really know what Jung is talking about. What he's talking about when he talks about numinous experience and the importance of the archetypal level are stories like uh, Moses at the burning bush, mm -hmm. hearing the voice of God telling him to free, go to Egypt and get the people freed and so on, or Saul on the road to Damascus, uh, hearing uh, the, um, the voice of Jesus saying, why do you persecute me? These are the kind of experiences that uh, Jung uh, based on the work of Rudolf Otto, calls numinous experiences. And Jung's major point is that numinous experiences don't need to be thought of in terms of the Judeo-Christian God. They can be thought of in terms of experiences of the objective psyche or the transpersonal level of the unconscious. And that they can take highly individual forms. You may have an experience of the objective psyche that has nothing to do with any of our existing religious traditions. But the emotional quality of the experience tells you it's an experience of the sacred or the holy. And this is where he borrows from Rudolf Otto, who says that the experience of the sacred or the holy is an experience of this mysterious, tremendous, fascinating, awesome, dreadful, and so on. Uh, but these experiences, Jung, think, Jung thinks you can have these experiences when you, when you have an experience of the deeper level of the unconscious. They may not be Judeo-Christian. And this is where he would be at odds with the uh, traditional Judeo-Christian theologians, people like Martin Buber, who um, argued with him about this. I, I could tell you a little about that if you're interested in that. Please. Yeah, um, Martin Buber, a very famous Jewish writer, and also some Christian theologians, complained that by talking about the God image in the psyche, Jung was reducing the divine to something that's nothing, quote, nothing but psych psychological, what, what was called psychologism, and that, and that the divine itself is transcendent of the psyche. And that Jung was um, uh, trying to do theology when he should have—he was out of his lane. He should have stuck to psychology. Jung's response to this was that the the divine mystery manifests itself through the psyche. We everything we say about God can only be said through the psyche, and God is experienced through the psyche. So he says, "I'm not doing theology because I'm just talking about experiences of the divine." And the, the point is that the psyche is real. So if you have an experience of the archetypal level or of the self, you're having an experience of something that's real. And his complaint was that Buber never seemed to understand this notion of the reality of the psyche. But, um, but for, for Buber and many of the theologians, Jung's God is too subjective, it's too imminent, it's too personal. You know, you could experience it every night in, in a dream, for example, and that would be a real experience. And this was uh, 
uh, and also the fact that it could take a very different form than the religious tradition you grew up in. You could have grown up in, let's say, uh, an American Methodist or Baptist family or something, and then you have a numinous experience of a Hindu god or goddess. Um, and for Jung, if it has that numinous quality, if it has the archetypal quality, um, it should be taken seriously as an experience of the sacred or the holy. And this was an intolerable notion to uh, theologians who were committed to their own god image. It, and the other thing that they objected to was Jung's notion of the dark side of the self. Um, in, in also in answer to Job, he makes the point that the Christian God image is too light. Uh, in, in most of the New Testament, God is experienced only as light and, light and love. The exception would be in the book of Revelation because of the avenging angels. But mostly in Christianity, God is very light and loving. And Jung thinks that they've split off the dark side of God or the dark side of the self dark side of the God image and projected it onto the Antichrist or the devil. And they've also split off the feminine aspects of the divine. So that um, he thinks that Christianity has a somewhat incomplete God image. And that notion was also intolerable, of course, to Christian theologians and led to conflict with some, uh, some of his theological uh, colleagues. I liked when you spoke about this when you were um, when you were writing about the conflict between an all-knowing and all-powerful God. Mm -hmm. you know, that yes, I think that speaks to what you're saying. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> the pro it, it's the problem of evil, really. The the problem of evil has always been for the traditions that if you have a God who could prevent evil and doesn't, he can't be all good. And if he cannot prevent evil, he's not omnipotent. The, the difficulty is having an omnipotent God who's also all good. This goes back a long way. So, for example, in process theology, they gave up the idea that God is in charge of everything. They said that there are some aspects of the divine, that there are some aspects of reality that are not controlled by God. Jung takes the opposite position and says, God is not perfectly good. There is a dark side to it. So when Job was suffering intensely as a result of that meeting between God and Satan, um, Job is experiencing the dark side of God or the dark side of the God image, at least. And that was also an intolerable idea to uh, the theologians. Well, not so much in the, in the Hebrew Bible. You do see that Isaiah and Amos and various places. You see the dark side of God. But, but um, in, in the Christian tradition, they wanted to preserve a God image, which is all light. So this, so this makes really Jungian psychology pretty much incompatible with Christianity, actually. When did you discover Eastern religion and philosophy? Oh, when did I discover it? Oh, many years ago. Um, um, I can't remember when. Probably thirty years ago or so. <laughs> did had had you had you first discovered Jungian psychology, or was it was it the other way around? Yes, yes. No, I first discovered Jung, uh, and then I became interested in in the Eastern traditions, uh, especially the non the non dual traditions. Uh, and um, 
you know, I think uh, Jung, Jung has a lot to offer and the non-dual traditions have a lot to offer. They, they, don't, they only overlap somewhat. Um, as I, I said before, to some extent they're incompatible because of Jung's insistence on, on the importance of the ego, which the non-dual traditions would deny. In a non-dual way, don't you, uh, or I guess in a, in a dual way, it does seem that a lot of people that I read or connect with have a both and. They, yes, I think you have to have both and. I heard a metaphor that I think is attributable to the Dalai Lama, but I'm not I'm sure about this. But the metaphor is that it's as if you're riding a bicycle with a handlebar and you're holding both sides of the handlebar and one side is consensual dualistic reality and the other side is non-dual reality and you have to hold both sides of the handlebar to steer the bike that is great so you have to hold both at the same time i think that's a useful metaphor i do too thank uh, you so, so for empirical uh, everyday purposes the ego of course is very important from a non-dual point of view it, it's not important at all it doesn't uh, doesn't really exist as a separate entity so both those are true but you have to live with where does typology come into this because it seems like the the empirical or the materialist school is 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 caught or only living through a, a, a sensate thinking function yes and, and um, well, the different but different types of people have different forms of spirituality. I mean, um, um, it doesn't matter what your type is. You'll you'll just develop a a personal form of spirituality. For example, uh, introverted, intuitive people tend to focus on the sense of, uh, on an an, an, an intuitive sense of divine presence. Um, Extroverted sensing people tend to like uh, things like uh, rituals and rosary beads and uh, objective manifestations uh, of the divine uh, sacraments and so on. So whatever your typology is, you, you can always find some kind of spiritual practice that fits your type. That's not a, an issue. Well, continuing on this beautiful handlebar metaphor, yeah. one, one thing I shared with you earlier is how... Uh, important and instrumental your work has been on helping me connect with a lot of the psychoanalytic thought uh-huh yes and, and so con- continuing down this kind of uh, the biographical notion of you know a jungian or, or the physician the the jungian the the eastern practitioner also uh, could you speak for a bit on when you discovered F- freud but really uh, it seems like kohut has been uh, an enormous influence for you Yes, I was very fortunate because I, I spent uh, many years on the faculty of a medical school in Chicago um, with uh, a couple of people who were uh, colleagues of Kohut. And so um, while I was training at the Jung Institute in Chicago, I was also learning Kohut from them. I was going to all the seminars I could on Kohut while I was in Chicago. So I learned self uh, uh, psychoanalytic self-psychology at the same time as I learned Jungian psychology. So in my mind, they're, they're integrated pretty well. Uh, and that was just a very fortunate. Kohat's been an important uh, influence for me. I mentioned that the, the complex has a human shell around an archetypal mm-hmm. core. 
And all the personalistic theories, doesn't matter whether it's Freud, Kohut, Klein, any of them, they will all help you with the dynamics of the human shell. So um, the, the, the personalistic theories tell you about the relational uh, dynamics um, and the uh, Jungian notion of the archetype at the core uh, helps you understand the, the emotional gripping power of the complex. So if you put those two together, you have a powerful way of understanding psychopathology. A cohort's notion of the self is different than, than Jung's notion of the self. So I don't think, so they can't really be conflated. Uh, although Kohut did talk about a kind of a cosmic narcissism, which cosmic narcissism, which sort of gets close to your, but um, essentially they're two different notions of the self. Kohut is talking about the personal self, which is closer to the ego in the, in those traditions. Although Kohut didn't use the word ego because he didn't want to be thought of as a drive psychologist. Um, so, um, you could talk about instead of the ego self-axis, the smaller self, bigger self-axis, or something like that. But that's uh, that's not terribly important. <clears throat> well, I think I think there's a disservice that people do when they they are one-sided in in anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I, I I'm going to carry this uh, the handlebar image with me for a long time. I appreciate you sharing that with me because I. I, I th there is a, a large psychoanalytic community here in Houston, and I, a critique I've heard of the kind of Jungian school is that Jungians oftentimes get lost in their own fairy tales, and uh -huh. you know th there, there's a there's a similar kind of um, yes. point of the spear from the other the other side, and yeah. and I, f I find that it's so necessary to be in both ends of the pond when working with people. I, I think that there is a, a reason, a justifiable critique. You, you can use archetypal mythic folkloric material as a defense against personal material. There's no doubt that that can be done. But uh, you could also, uh, you know, turn the criticism around and say that the Freudians are ignoring the archetypal level of the psyche. Mm -hmm. That they're in denial about the, the fact that there's a spiritual dimension of the psyche. So, um, but both both critiques could be valid at times. So <clears throat> that's a a good jump into kind of current current events. Earlier, you were talking about the rise of fundamentalism. I wonder if we could chat a bit about what you're seeing, what your interpretation of what's happening geopolitically in our world right now. Um, well, f I think fundamental fundamentalism is a defense against anxiety by, by uh, holding on to certainty um, because if, if you have a if, if the book has a fixed meaning and, and you're told exactly what's true and what's not true and how to behave and how not to behave um, that that produces a certain amount of certainty and reduces anxiety um, and it allows you to, to uh, repress doubt and project your own doubt onto unbelievers and so on. The price you pay for that, of course, is a, a lack of imagination and um, uh, difficulty repressing the shadow and so on. So people pay an enormous price for being fundamentalists. Um, 
and they're always dangerously militaristic. They always seem willing to um, kill unbelievers as a way of um, dealing with their own doubt projected outwardly onto other people. Yeah, to, to end the un, to end the unbeliever, so that I don't have to feel the feelings that I feel when I'm in relationship with the unbeliever. Well, I don't have to feel my own doubt. I can let the unbeliever carry my doubt in projection. I can even kill the unbeliever, and then I'm trying to kill my own doubt. Of course, this is a projective defense. Um, but I, the, but uh, what I gain is certainty. But I lose all these. I lose um, the imagination. I lose a personal connection to the sacred. If it manifests itself in, in, in novel forms, I have to experience the sacred in a certain way. So it has a lot of drawbacks. Yeah, very limiting. Uh, yeah. Have you put much thought to what's happening currently in America around um, uh, sexual harassment? You know, the intensity with, uh, with the energy that's following sexual harassment? Uh, no, I haven't given it much thought. I, I think our whole political scene is an example of the collective shadow becoming conscious. And it's embodied in, in uh, a few people who are expressing what's been suppressed in the culture for a long time. Would you the say narcissism. more about that, the collective? Well, the, the racism, the misogyny, um, the... Um, the white supremacy, all that kind of problem. We've all known that this has been an undercurrent in the culture for a long time, but in the last few couple of years, um, it's come to the surface. In a big way. So, uh, yeah, in a big way, uh, in our political figures and um, entertainment figures. I think it's, I think it's the return of the repressed and. Maybe it'll, if it's taken seriously, there'll be some cultural house cleaning. I just wonder if now is the time that we're going to look back on in 20 years and say, oh, my gosh, we had no idea what was really happening. You know, it's kind of hard to yeah. see what's going on when you're in the middle of it. When you're in, yes, I agree. Yeah. It certainly feels like we're in the middle of something powerful that I think many people are going to look back on and, and try to deny that they were at the forefront of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd rather not talk about the culture because I'm not a social scientist, actually. So I don't no, feel very qualified right. to talk. Uh, so the the thing that I, I I'm you know conscientious of your time, and we talked about having an hour, and I I want to go into um, consciousness, and I know we we spoke on that, but you know what, what yeah what is consciousness from your perspective? Well, I mean, this is such a controversial topic. I, I mean, I, I don't think consciousness is simply a product of the brain. Um, some people do, of course. Um, but I think there's good evidence that consciousness is a fundamental property of the universe, like gravity or something, that's irreducible. And that's a tenable philosophical position that many people hold. Um, and I don't think we can say what its essential nature is. So, um, I mean, I'm sure you're aware what a huge philosophical problem this is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Although I wonder, uh, you you write about it. I do wonder about looking into the body as a as at as at least a landscape for us to begin to understand what might be going on. You know, in quotations, out there, uh, in 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 some kind of beyond. For example, out of body experiences and near death experiences, which I think are very convincing, are, are good evidence that consciousness can exist. Um, as it were, outside the body or without the body. Uh, and there, there, there's a, there are lines of evidence, but it's not, um, the evidence is not conclusive either way. So this is a debate that's been going on for a long time and it hasn't been solved. I think one just has to take a position on somewhere in the debate. But for me, things like out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences are convincing evidence um, that consciousness is not confined to the body or the brain. But, you know, it's just a matter of opinion at the moment. What, what would um, Indian philosophy, some, some Hindu philosophy, say about, about that? Well, they would say that consciousness is primary. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you know, you could write it as if metaphorically with a, with a capital C. That's that the divine and consciousness are not two different things; they're the same thing. And that, um, as it were, manifestation is a manifestation of consciousness. The consciousness manifests itself as the world or as the universe. Um, so, one the met one metaphor that some people use is the metaphor of the computer screen or the. The, the movie screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, on on the screen, there are millions of pixels, and the screen can manifest any image just by altering the the color and shape of the pixel, not the shape, the color of the pixels. So, if the screen was aware, if you imagine the screen is analogous to consciousness, consciousness can manifest any kind of image on it. But, but uh, there's no separation between the image and the screen. The image on the screen is not separable from the screen. If the screen was aware, um, that would be consciousness with a capital C or mm. awareness with a capital A. So similarly, the whole of manifestation is a, is a manifestation of pure consciousness. Uh, That's the theory. <clears throat> oh, I like it. I like that one. How has meditation played a part in your practice? Uh, well, I think I found meditation personally helpful. Um, it's difficult to say how it plays a part in practice. I suppose it uh, it allows the training of attention, mm-hmm. um, which is helpful in psychotherapy because we have to pay careful attention to what's going on. I think paying careful attention is a form of meditation, actually being very aware of what's going on and paying attention is a is a form of meditation well i'm i'm paying careful attention to our time and i know that we're we're coming up on our hour and um i i I just want to i know that the for listeners obviously they weren't aware of the conversation we had before about the fires that are going on out there now and um, my my brother's out there on the coast with you so i'm I'm hoping you guys stay safe and away from harm. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Would you would you let uh, 
let people listening know how they can uh, know more about you or find out more about you or uh, any kind of direction for people who uh, who are curious? Well, I run a small organization called Psyche and the Sacred, um, uh, where we meet every couple of months, in, in, usually in Los Angeles somewhere, to talk about... Um, personal spiritual experience, Jung's approach to spirituality. And the website is uh, all one word, psycheandthesacred.org. And if you go to that website, um, um, I think that's probably the best way of finding out about what I'm talking about. Okay, good. And and what, uh, what are you working on currently? Well, I've just published, uh, there's a book uh, that's about to appear called Understanding Evil, which is about the problem of evil from a depth psychological point of view. And I'm now working on a book uh, on what I think is an emerging new God image um, that's going to, I think, eventually replace the, some of our existing God images, based on Jung's notion. <laughs> no easy task to take on, Lionel. That's, yes, uh... <laughs> that would take, a, take, take us another hour to discuss that. <laughs> Well, look, based on I, a lot of material from the Red Book. Oh, fantastic! Well, I, I for one, am going to continue reading all your books that you put out. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be able to share this conversation with you. I appreciate your openness and willingness to do so, and continue doing what you're doing, and I'll continue reading what you put out. Okay, it's been nice talking to you. i